welcome to Political Economy for the End Times. Talking political economy like there's no tomorrow. We are faced with intersecting crises. That the world economy has remained stagnant since 2008, with the possibility of another financial crash looming. The European project confronts a series of existential threats. Several Latin American economies are racked by familiar yet devastating economic imbalances. Even the Chinese juggernaut appears to be slowing. The natural world itself is groaning under the strain of capitalism's ravenous appetite, and the most jarring political mobilization that has arisen to meet these threats is a form of chauvinistic nativism that mimics the worst features of 20th century politics. A political economy for our times must directly address these crises and attempt to grasp their interrelation and fundamental causes. This podcast is put together by myself, Jack Copley, and Javier Moreno Zacarés. Despertemos, despertemos humanidad. Ya no hay tiempo. Nuestras conciencias... Nuestras conciencias serán sacudidas por el hecho de estar solo contemplando la autodestrucción basada en la depredación capitalista, racista y patriarcal. El río Hualcarque nos ha llamado así como los demás que están seriamente amenazados en todo el mundo. Debemos sacudir. La madre tierra militarizada, cercada, envenenada, donde se violan sistemáticamente derechos elementales, nos exige actuar. Construyamos entonces sociedades capaces de coexistir de manera justa, digna y por la vida. It seems that the world is racing towards climate catastrophe. The problem is that capital is in the driver's seat and capitalist competition compels the expansion of production without regard for whether ever increasing outputs can be sustained or not. Even if that means heading at full speed into a civilizational collapse. Now the symptoms of time warping acceleration have been with us ever since capitalism came about. For example, capitalism has always had a peculiar capacity to find shortcuts to the present. The need to increase productivity to stay in business means that capitalists are constantly pressured to cut labor time in familiar ways. Work discipline, labor saving technology, faster circulation. The result has been a gathering speed of economic reality, what we have come to know as growth. But capitalists have also found ways of reaching into the future, through finance, which allows them to make present use of profits that are yet to be made. Likewise, capitalists have been able to quite literally bring back the past to animate the present, by digging up the ancient fuel deposits that currently run our societies. We have always known that these time-bending properties were bound to crash the present, because they often overheat markets, and as we now know, the planet itself as well. Capitalism may bring growth, but this often comes at the expense of precarity and exploitation, 
which for most means that they have less time to enjoy the fruits of an accelerated present. Capitalism may open up time portals to future profits, but for most that comes with a greater scrutiny of their past, which comes back to haunt them in the form of credit rating. And of course, capitalism may carve up the past to fuel the present, but does so at the expense of shortening all of our futures, by poisoning our environment and perhaps by bringing forth the end of civilization itself. We were told a long time ago that capitalism sows the seeds of its own destruction. But now that the natural world itself is groaning under the strain of capital accumulation, this dictum seems more prescient than ever. And yet, living on the verge of the end times can be exciting as well, because there are reasons to think that there is still some time to pull an emergency break. The awareness of being at a world historical turning point means that we are able to be conscious, perhaps like never before, of the significance of our political agency. It will be our actions, our part in the coming struggle against the climate breakdown, that will play a determining role in whether humanity transitions to eco-socialism or rather keeps descending into barbarism. To talk about all of this, we have interviewed Gareth Dale, senior lecturer at Brunel, University of London. Dale is known for his eco-socialist writings in The Ecologist magazine, but also for his books on the thought of Karl Polanyi, the history of East Germany, the political economy of Eastern Europe, or the role of migrant labor in the European Union. So, Gareth, thanks for having us in your living room. Yeah, well, thanks for uh, inviting me on and um, and for coming all this way from various parts of the country to come and do this. Uh, so, I wanted to start this interview by exploring the broad question of the relationship between capitalism and the environment. Now, I think that a good entry point is the conceptual distinction that you draw between capitalist time and ecological time. Can you explain what these two temporalities are and how they relate to one another? Okay, so um, what I'm getting at here is uh, human beings, they relate to various systems through different temporalities. That's the different rhythms of time and the different ways in which humans relate to time. And in the essay in The Ecologist magazine that you're referring to, I, uh, I look really at three of those. That's geological time, ecological time, and, and capitalist time. And by capitalist time, well, all social systems are ways of organizing behavior in time. And in capitalism, well, capital, cap, the the aim of capital is to increase profit by saving time, and this accounts for some of its central dynamics, the systematic disciplining of labor and the segregation of labor from the rest of human experience, um, which enables labor time to be marked out and measured. Um, uh, the, also, the continual acceleration of labor processes, of technolog te technical and social change. And also the fetishism of technology, because technology has a key role in displacing labor and reducing the circulation time of capital. And also, of course, obviously, the systematic degrading of the natural environment. So in a sense, capitalism eats time, and in the process of eating time, it erases nature. 
So capitalist time is abstracted from ecological time in a way that's very different to previous societies. And as capitalism took over the world uh, from the 17th through 20th centuries, it imposed its regime of abstract time. And it kind of weaponized it. It used it as justification for the occupation and the domination of the peoples it encountered. Um, and even the concept of the savage was based on the belief that to be fully human means uh, to have your rituals and behavior sharply separated from the rhythms of nature. Um, so that's capitalist time. What about ecological time? Well, it was coined by an anthropologist, I think it was Evans Pritchard, um, and it refers to human beings' interaction with natural processes. So it's generally understood as something cyclical and continuous, uh, something that endures uh, although, of course, even in the past, human beings, in particular environments, were able to destabilize uh, that, those environments and therefore, in a sense, ecological time very rapidly. But today, what we're seeing is ecological time changing very swiftly on the global scale. That's what makes it extraordinarily different to the past. And this means that we no longer think of the planetary future as a, as a stable, predictable continuation of, of the present. Uh, the capitalist system producing the so-called great acceleration of production and consumption and resource extraction and pollution. Um, that system is producing profound twists in temporality, not least to ecological time and, and, and geological time. And this is occurring above all through fossil fuel extraction. And you can see here quite vividly the temporalities uh, at work because what you see is the fossil fuel companies digging down into the lithosphere, um, digging through the geological layers, the layers of time, if you like, reaching the Carboniferous layer, the Jurassic, the Cretaceous, and from those layers, they exhume the carbon deposits depo that had been deposited in the geological past. This brings profits to those companies in the present day uh, in the form of energy or through the energy which they sell. And that energy is then pumped out as exhaust carbon uh, into the atmosphere, which queues up infernos and multiple hells for the future um, inhabitants and denizens of this planet. Um, and then there's the twist that because of the inertia of climate processes, including oceanic thermal inertia, and because of the role of climate feedback mechanisms in accelerating climate change into the future, we're not experiencing in the present anything like the full impact uh, of the acts of those fossil fuel companies. And so all of this, I think, makes one of the key questions facing us today a question of temporality. And so if you if you look at traditional socialist and liberal, etc. perspectives, the, the assumption was always of a, an essentially unchanging environment stretching out into the future. The future society that... Socialists, for example, would imagine was one that was would be constructed in a pretty much static natural environment with a bountiful nature. Um, but climate change and the trashing of all the other biophysical limits that we're seeing going on at the moment, that has turned all this upside down. And it raises the question, what's the time scale of human need? Um, so in the traditional leftist dichotomy, you have uh, sort of the left 
presents itself as for people and human need, an economy based on human need, against the right who are in favor of an economy geared towards profit. And in terms of time and temporality, profit is something referring to the short-term financial interests of the of the rich, essentially, and the, the annual shareholders, dividend, or the investment cycle on a bit of a longer scale, but still pretty short-term. Um, and that's the dominant force that shapes the world today. But what of the temporality of people, of human need? Is this a short-term category or, or, or a long-term one? So if we're arguing for a society that's geared to human need and not corporate and shareholder profit, what timescale are we talking about? Are we talking of the human beings alive today or those in 50 years' time or 500 or 5,000? And um, I guess uh, the hope has to be that as if people gather together in social movements and engage collectively in grassroots movements, then what you tend to see is the compass of human concern extending through space and time as you as people hopefully by and large this is what we tend to see as social movements um develop and um gain power people tend more to see themselves as part of a uh a human society and the, the scale of their concern extends from their individual and their family to the to the world as a whole and um, hopefully we will see that occurring uh, on the temporal scale as well, that people, people the, con- the concern of care and solidarity will begin to stretch further and further towards the future. So you mentioned that preceding political theories have always assumed the linear continuity of, of, the, of the world and the environment. What does this mean for the left nowadays? The fact that you know there might be, or there there certainly is, a, a looming civilizational collapse. How should the left tackle this idea? Okay. Um, well, maybe a good place to start is with a, a fascinating paper that came out uh, a year or two ago. I forget. Um, called "Trajectories of the Earth System in the Anthropocene." Um, And in that paper, the scientists who write it, Earth Systems scientists, describe very vividly the track that the Earth is on at the moment in climate terms, which is uh, the trajectory is is one of barreling towards a hothouse Earth. Um, And the process uh, is of escalating feedback mechanisms, you know, the ice melting and so no longer reflecting the sun's energy back into space and um and forests burning and uh the oceans releasing more and more carbon dioxide and um uh methane being emitted from tundra and and so on um so what you could what you could see what threatens is a series of cascading tipping points um which lead to an escalating uh, climate catastrophe, possibly a rise of 7 Celsius by the end of this century. Later on, maybe one day, 10 Celsius of all, if, even if only the fossil fuels that we know about are, are burned up, um, that's the kind of scale that could be looked at, and which is extremely, uh, which would just be devastating for the planet, of course. And then in the same paper, they chart out uh, a possible uh, the alternative that if there is radical action globally very soon you could 
possibly, perhaps probably, I don't know, see a stabilization of the Earth system. And so in a sense then, it's, I, I think sometimes in, in, in terms of the trolley car uh, ethics image or the, the tram, the tram coming towards, coming down the hill, and there's a junction coming very soon, and and down the main line, uh, the, the the main track, it's the one we're on. If you see further into the distance, most of the species on this planet are clamped to the tracks, and they they they're going to be run over, if, including possibly Homo sapiens, if the tram continues down this track towards a hothouse Earth. But there's a junction coming up. For, there's a junction that we're at right now, and. They, tram could fork down a sidetrack and avoid much of that damage. The problem is that the driver up at the front is capital and is able to keep most of us in our seats much of the time and we've not yet found the way to rush up and grab the brake and apply the emergency brake. So in a sense this is an incredibly exciting moment to be alive right now because the future of the world really is in a sense at stake in a very material way. The future of uh, most species, the habitability of the biosphere for most mammals including our own, the future of the atmosphere, the climate, it's uh, something that we can materially influence if we act today, if we're able to act today. But it's also obviously a maddening moment, a frustrating moment because the present owner of the world, the driver of the tram, is capital. And because most property is bound, most of the earth owned as property is bound up in circuits of capitalist competition. So a headless, anarchic system of accumulation that forces a focus on profit and, um, and revenue growth. And much worse, it pins the rest of us down. And because it owns most of the world, including our jobs, including our economic future, is much much of our own as individuals, much of the time we have to do what it tells us, in a sense. Um, so it's possible that we've already passed that critical junction. Um, there's a recent report in Nature Journal entitled, just a few days before this interview, it was entitled Climate Tipping Points, Too Risky to Bet Against. And it's, you know, the, 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 the risk it's uh, portraying here is that climate change will just accelerate unstoppably. The feedback mechanisms unleashing such extraordinary force, massive bombs of methane hydrates welling up from under the seas and so on. Humans would be powerless to stop um, us careering towards this hothouse state. Now, talking in those terms, sometimes people warn you that this is catastrophist uh, imagery, uh, but in truth it's pretty sober realism. It's a recognition that the worst case scenarios are are very extreme and they are possible and much more likely than even the IPCC countenanced in, in most of its reports until recently, the Inter Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So in, a, in one sense we may be standing at an all-or-nothing moment in human and planetary history. That is to say, there's, there's a, there may be a window of just a couple of decades from now such that if there are radical emissions reductions, some kind of planetary stabilization would, would be possible. You know. But we may not be. Perhaps the window has already been smashed. Perhaps the tipping points will inevitably cascade, taking the carbon in the atmosphere and the oceans, soaring past anything that humans can do to pull it back. And But in either case, does it mean we should just give up fighting for change. I think I think it means the opposite. I don't think even talking in those catastrophic terms means giving up at all. Because if the window is still there, we have to urgently do whatever we can 
to bring emissions down, to stop the madness of an economic system driven by the imperative of capital accumulation. But even in the second case, even though the window has been smashed, it just makes, I think, uh, ideas of the imperative of class struggle and of socialism much, much more urgent. Because if you look at that second case, some kind of global civilizational collapse would likely occur at some point. And how would it happen? Well, it could be in terms of um, multiple concurrent breakdowns in the, in the production of staple crops, for example. Some people are calling this multi-bread back, sorry, multi-bread back basket failures. Um, so crop failures in several regions uh, of staple crops and maybe uh, problems of drought and water provision too. If you look at the recent drought in South Asia, I mean, the state was able to contain it there. It was able to bring in water literally by the train load. But what if state capacities were breaking down and food prices soaring at the same time? What happens then? And Now, some environmentalists talk in these terms assuming it's some it would be some kind of Malthusian catastrophe. In other words, food production would be insufficient to feed the human population, leading to mass starvation of of poor people, because the rich world, of course, would be able to buy the food it needs still if there were any left, and there would be. But that's a misleading uh, picture. For for several reasons. First 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 of all, there's far more food being produced than is actually needed. Half of it is wasted, and a great deal of it is just badly distributed. Too much for some, too little for others. And But beyond that, also, we have the knowledge and the ability to produce far, far more efficiently very, very quickly. So, for example, instead of huge swathes of the Midwest of the USA being covered in crops for biofuels, um, produce them for human beings instead. Um or look at meat production, um, which is just astonishingly inefficient as a way of converting soil and sunlight and rain into amino acids and carbohydrates and so on. It's incredibly inefficient. There was a very good BBC documentary on this um, just a couple of days ago. It's called Meat, a Threat to Our Planet. Um, it's going to be on iPlayer for the next year or so. Um, uh, everyone should watch it if they can. And and it just shows the extraordinary inefficiency of industrial agriculture and uh, industrial beef production in, in, in particular. So you could really very rapidly within the space of a few years switch from that kind of agriculture to small farm-based agroecology and so on. And that what, what, what does that mean? That means if, if a multi-bread basket failure did occur... It would at the very most be a, a kind of semi-Malthusian crisis, um, in other words, a crisis of too little. Um, largely, it would remain a crisis of distribution, and that's one that can be solved politically. And to do that, you need to stop the agribusinesses and speculators cornering the market to, to profit from spikes in food, food prices. You need to imprison the speculators. Uh, you need to find the granaries, break into them, fight off the security guards and the police, commandeer ships, sail them to where the, the food is needed, and, and distribute them. All of this is politically possible um, and would be urgently necessary in that kind of scenario. So is eco-socialism or barbarism, basically? Uh, yeah, very much. Very much Absolutely, so. yeah, exactly. So I want to go back to this the, the image that you presented of um, capital being in the driver's seat, going full steam ahead on the rails of uh, environmental collapse. And uh, just to think about how did capital get in the driver's seat to begin with. Now, in your work, you historicize the emergence of what you call 
the growth paradigm, uh, the self-conscious pursuit of linear growth. And unlike what economists sometimes claim, you argue that this logic is not built into the human species, but rather that it is a relatively recent historical construction that only comes about with the emergence of capitalism, of course. Can you briefly explain how the lineage of the growth paradigm maps onto the rise and dominance of capitalist accumulation? Okay, well, um, pre-capitalist forms of um, civilization and empires and so on, they they knew various uh, commitments to certain particular kinds of growth. You know, you had um, uh, intellectuals um, drawing up plans to increase trade or improve agriculture. You had kings and monarchs and queens and lords fighting for greater territory and expansion in that sense, um, and so on. Um, But this peculiar form of ideology, the growth paradigm, the idea that uh, economic growth, the the idea that depends on the concept uh, to start with of the the economy, the idea that there is an economy that we can understand in abstracted terms as a sort of, as something that... um, that runs according to certain laws and tendencies. Um, This idea that there's an economy for which growth is a kind of natural, continual, and potentially infinite goal, Um, and one, moreover, that is the balm, the the solution to all sorts of social problems, Um, that's relatively recent. And um, it only became sort of, it only took on its kind of full-fledged form uh, in the 20th century, but you can see it uh, c- beginning to come together, the, the various ingredients of that ideology beginning to be formed much, much earlier. And um, I had always assu- I'd always assumed that um, that its first sort of breakthrough was in, for example, the work of Adam Smith, late 18th century. You know, he was a, um, a theorist of economic growth. He didn't conceive of economic growth as infinite, but much, uh, many other kind of ingredients of this ideology were there in Smith. Um, but then I looked back a, a little earlier at um, earlier economists, particularly English ones of the late 17th century and um, mid to late 17th century, and um, you can see pretty clearly uh, those ingredients that I mentioned forming already there. These were later mercantilist economists or proto-liberal economists, and um, the context in which they were working was one of sort of various types of shift in sensibility. And uh, one of them concerns time, which we were talking about earlier, and, and space. The, 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 there was a concern with quantification and uh, reconceptualization of space and time as being abstract and infinite and uniform. Um, there was the rise of the market system and um, and the market paradigm, but the, the idea that this that there's an economy that exists, um, the threads of which are connected through the market, um, such that the market can be conceived of something that is subject to laws and tendencies. There was the scientific revolution, which fed into, which provided ways of um, conceiving of the economy as a law-governed system. There was a long-term shift in attitudes to gain and luxury and avarice and greed and commerce, um, 
valorizing them all as compared to the sort of as contrasted with the earlier uh, religiously based frowning on these as possibly sins at least when in excess and the as far as I can tell, the, I'd be happy to be challenged on this or proven wrong, but as far as I can make out, um, the a crucible for uh, the, the main crucible for some of these changes was 17th century England. It was there that, or here, that you saw a fascination with and a, a com commitment to improving agriculture. Improve, there was a kind of cult, I should say, of improvement. Um, it was here that you saw the development of pseudoscientific economics and the idea that the economy is some sort of entity subject to dynamics of growth. And the referent of growth itself began to change. It had previously been applied only really to organic particulars, things like trees or plants or populations. Um, but it shifted gradually to inorganic generalities and abstractions, the growth of trade and, and that sort of thing. Um, and you also, also in England in the 17th century, you had this early, the early stirrings of this notion that the growth is kind of, of, of a sort of basic existential interest to the, to the state itself, so that the state policy should aim at increasing the national prosperity. Um, and that, I think you saw that above all in England's colonization of Ireland. It was, um, you know, who was the great, early innovator of national income accounting which was crucial to the emergence of the growth paradigm because you can't measure growth you can't talk of growth uh, really seriously systematically unless you can actually measure it and it was William Petty who was uh, one of the English colonizers of Ireland and it was in the project of colonizing Ireland that he he developed these systems and so that's that's pretty much the history and then uh, but I think growth has to be viewed ideologically um, as, an, as an ideology as well as um, material processes. And as ideology, I see it as really something that stands for and functions as a kind of naturalizer and justifier of, of capital accumulation. If, if the heart of the, the way in which the capitalist economy works is the accumulation of capital, the basic immediate and increasingly powerful beneficiaries of that are the owners of capital and the rest of the population sort of get the crumbs as it were and remain in a relatively powerless position but if you if what is essentially capital accumulation is represented as as growth i'm not suggesting this is done in some sort of conspiratorial or manipulative kind of way this is just the way ideologies emerge and um uh if it's if growth if if we understand the goal of the economy that we're part of as uh, one of growth it it it's the ideological function is to persuade us that we're all in it together and we're all um or we all benefit from the growing economy and so on which in immediate terms uh can have some obvious truth to it um but that's the way successful ideologies work and i so i just wanted to look at growth as ideology because so much so much focus of understanding the core dominant ideologies of um, capitalist society has been on, for example, the role of nationalism. But um, I think growth was under-emphasized, under-explored until relatively recently. Now, of course, in the last 
10 years you see uh, you, we, we've seen a renaissance of work on uh, the ideology of economic growth but most of it uh, focuses on the 20th century and sees the ideology of growth as really coming about in the 20th century I'm thinking of people like Timothy Mitchell in uh, Colombia and uh, Matthias Schmelz uh, in, in Switzerland um, who are, have written brilliant uh, articles and books on, on uh, ideology of growth but they tend to uh, in my view, overemphasized certain developments in the 20th century, and um, uh, important though they were, and underestimate the, uh, the sort of long-term evolution of uh, the factors, the ingredients, as I'm referring to them, that, that congealed together to form the, 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 the growth ideology as we know it today. So if the idea of, of economic growth is indeed inextricably bound up with capitalism, then perhaps it's unsurprising that capitalism's most diehard advocates um, often get defensive at the idea of a looming climate breakdown. Because after all, nothing challenges the ideology of limitless growth, uh, like the prospect of the world itself coming to an end, and precisely because of unrestrained growth. Uh, so a British conservative politician has recently claimed that a climate change theory, in quotations, of course, is a socialist Trojan horse designed to, to sabotage the capitalist economy. However, in recent years, the ideologists of capitalism have tried to incorporate environmental concerns into their worldview, right? So they're, they're giving, giving rise to the idea of green growth. Um, now, green growth implies that technological innovation through... Capitalist competition can outpace the climate breakdown by rebooting the capitalist economy in a more sustainable way. You have been a notorious critic of this idea. Can you give us a sense of what green growth would involve and why you think it's not viable? Yeah, so I haven't done all that much work on green growth, but I was part of a group of people who got together and organized a conference on this, and we brought out a book um, called... Green growth, I think it was, um, a critical analysis of green growth. And well, basically, I think the green growthers don't really get the measure of the problem or the scale of the problem at all, is the most basic point to make, which is that, you know, reducing emissions and increasing efficiency just isn't going to cut it. Emissions have to be reduced to zero, which represents a very fund or net zero, which represents an incredibly fundamental um, uh, challenge. So, you know, pointing to new technologies that enable some efficiency savings, um, that is just not dealing with the scale of the problem. Um, secondly, the green growthers don't recognize the problem of rebound effects in a market economy then. If we introduce a new technology, say, for example, we spend less on petrol, uh, then the price of petrol falls, so demand for petrol rises and people drive more. So the green growth is, I mean, they, when, you're, when you're in a hole, you need to stop digging. And if the hole is climate breakdown, then you need to stop digging coal. And uh, the degrowthers sort of pretend to recognize that. They suggest that we've got to stop digging coal. But business as usual can carry on uh, essentially in the same model that we that is operated today. Same economic system, different sources of energy. But 
But the digging will still continue on a mass scale. For example, the digging of lithium for, um, or the mining of lithium for the for electric vehicles and so on. And um, if the scale of the conversion of fossil fuels to um, uh, to renewable energies, to renewable energy, and of the conversion of the world's vehicle fleet to uh, electric vehicles, if they're just simply repl- if all the energy produced by fossil fuels and all the cars and trucks, etc., and planes are just re- replaced with electric, then uh, the planet's lithium reserves will all be mined, and the process of mining them will take in itself an enormous amount of energy um, as well. And so you have to ask where that all that energy is coming from too. Um, much of this reproduces relations of imperialism as well. Look at Germany's lithium grab in Bolivia lately and so on. It's going to be the, the, it's the rich car-producing countries that are lining up to benefit from this. And so, um, so these solutions that the green growthers are uh, projecting, they just don't add up if you look at the look at the figures i mean of course they they will respond and say well lithium has been it was only really discovered as a uh, as a battery as a chemical for batteries in i don't know what it was early 90s or something and you know in 10 years time there'll be a new one discovered and, and so on maybe but we can't bet the future of the planet on that sort of uh speculation um i first got into this question um it must have been around about 15 years ago uh, when I was doing a little, I did a little bit of research on British corporations, their strategies on confronting climate change. And the corporate, I I can't remember, uh, about half a dozen corporations I looked at, briefly looked at their strategies. And most of them were based on introducing agrofuels or biofuels into their vehicle fleet um, uh, and reducing energy use, although all of them, when confronted, they admit that that's just what capitalist businesses do anyway, because we're, you know, there's an imperative to reduce costs, and so that sort of reduction of energy use is just the norm. And then for the oil companies, they were making token investments in renewables, but this was really symbolic, essentially BP and so on. And then fourthly, there was a great deal of faith in technological innovation, some actual technological innovation, but. Um, large doses of faith as well. Um, so one of the businesses I looked at at the time was Virgin Atlantic, the aviation company, and um, and its CEO at the time famously was Richard Branson, who um, nowadays must, in retrospect, must seem a, a ridiculous clown because um, he, you know, in his autobiography, he, he, he said something like this. He said, um, you know, people say to me, if carbon emissions are the problem... Why doesn't Branson just stop his planes from flying? But if Virgin Atlantic stopped, we would leave a gap that somebody who might have no sense of responsibility at all would fill. And what he meant by sense of responsibility was a vague knowledge or recognition of climate change. Um, And so he attempted to make investments in agrofuels to fuel his flights. And uh, the 
the magical ingredient at the time was coconut oil. And I remember I just I looked into the sums involved and, you know, you are able to distill some aviation fuel out of coconut oil and put it in planes and fly them. But um, uh, the amount of coconuts required, I can't remember how much it is, but to run heat, just one airport alone, say Heathrow, it's... Uh, well, for the year, I don't know, the entire world's coconut supply or something of that sort. Um, you, there's no possible way of lifting all those tens of thousands of planes into the air. They're very heavy things and take a lot of energy just on the back of, of coconuts. Um, and now look at what's happened to Virgin Atlantic. It's got massive expansion goals now, and it's, it's a key lobbyist for Heathrow expansion. And in general, so in, so this faith in technological innovation that the green growthers have just isn't working um, in aviation technologies do make a difference. We're seeing a 1% roughly annual saving in carbon efficiency each year, but the industry itself is growing at 4 to 5% each year. So it's just ridiculous. Or take, say, in the same industry, take Gatwick Airport. If you go to Gatwick Airport, you see signs all over the place saying Gatwick Airport is carbon neutral. And you, I, the first time I saw that, I was just, I, I, I was so taken aback. I, what? What? And then I looked into it, and what this involves is saying, well, Gatwick only sources its air electricity to, to run its light lighting in the airport itself um, from uh, renewable sources. But that, of course, means that everyone else in Britain, because they're not actually building new uh, wind farms, it means other people in uh, in the same supply system are just drawing more of that energy from non-renewables so it makes no actual difference it's it's a, it's a joke uh but also that it relies the other prong of its justification is is offsetting in other words they plant trees in somewhere where it's very cheap to plant trees usually in a third world country and um uh but these are trees that need to be planted anyway so i mean so offsetting is a ludicrous um joke as well so so the impression people are given is that planes just fly by magic what so it's it's a hilarious case and it's an appalling case but it's also interesting because it reminds us that when that the, the the programs of green growth pick out these sort of examples of what you can do but in each case they involve the exclusion of a lot of the context so in the case of Gatwick Airport, it's very crass because what's being excluded is what's you know the point of the airport. All the planes taking off, they're not, they've not suddenly um, discovered how to fly by magic. I went to Korea um, a few years ago, and there there's a so-called smart city, Songdo, um, and it's the one of the paradigm green growth cities. Um, it, it, it was selected by the United Nations to host the UN Green Climate Fund. Um, and it was, so it's a paradigm of what can be done. Um, but when you look on its website, there's lots of sort of um, green grass on the website of Songdo um, and on the webpage. And uh, on the menu, on, on the buttons on the side, you see various a lot of talk of sustainability and, and so on. You scroll down through the buttons saying sustainability this and that and green leadership and whatnot. And then you come to a strange word which I'd never come across, which is aerotropolis. I thought, what, what is an aerotropolis? And then you click on that and it says, and, uh, and you read, Songdo is a com compelling, 
Aerotropolis, strategically located only seven miles from Incheon International Airport. In other words, and so they're they're trying to get people to you know use Songdo as a commuting hub. You can commute to work there or commute from work there. In other words, it's a city that's explicitly designed to accelerate the expansion of air travel, uh, a mechanism for injecting enormous quantities of carbon dioxide and other chemicals into the upper trop- troposphere and and so none of the i mean i'm focusing on aviation examples because they're the, the starkest but the, the, you, 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 the same applies elsewhere the the absolute decoupling of growth from resource throughput um that the green growthers rely on just isn't possible and um it's explored in the book i've edited the green growth one by ulrich hoffman from unctad which is it's a very good piece and it's this is systemic because you know, uh, no matter how responsible the head of a capitalist business is, their actions are going to be determined by profitability. The ability to use workers and natural resources as cheaply as possible to generate maximum surplus for themselves and their, their shareholders. So the, that pressure forces um, the exploitation of workers and the exploitation of nature. They, they're both seen as costs. It's a system-blind, sorry, it's a future-blind system that is going to sabotage its conditions of possibility and, and you can't tweak it um, into compatibility with a habitable planet in the way that the green growthers want to do. Let's move on from green growth onto red growth, so to speak. Now, there has always been a strand of socialist thought that has been fascinated with the idea of accelerating growth. To bring up a famous example from the Soviet Union, Lenin I think it was Lenin, famously claimed that communism was Soviet power plus the electrification of the whole country. Now, the implicit argument here is that an expansion of material abundance is a necessary precondition for an advanced egalitarian society. In recent years, there has been a revival of this way of thinking in the Anglo-American left, often under the label of left accelerationism. Now, authors within this line of thinking argue that growth shouldn't just be rolled back, but rather accelerated beyond capitalism's limits. The underlying premise being that not only there are technological solutions to climate change, like the green growthers argue, but that an acceleration of technological improvement in areas like solar energy or automated production would usher into the world a degree of material abundance that could unlock a path to a communist society. In response, you have cautioned not only against the idea that you know technological fixes are a, a limited response to the climate breakdown, but also against such faith in the emancipatory potential of technology. Can you explain your critique of this, I think you've called it techno-socialism? Well... I remember when I was a kid reading science fiction, um, one story that um, that I recall involved a, someone who invented um, a technique of extracting gravity from objects. Um, and so he had a car, he had an old car and he couldn't afford to run it or something. And uh, But you extract all the gravity from it and um, hey, you get to work cheaply. You hardly have to buy, buy any petrol and um, um, that's obviously a case of 
sci-fi magical thinking and i think there's a lot of exactly that sort of thinking around um in as people get more and more desperate to deal with uh the challenge of climate change there's a form of escapism that takes takes the magical route hopefully technology will simply come along and save us and and it plays a particular uh, role on the left it has it has additional value on the left because in a answer in my previous answer to your question about green growth i was talking about you know the the fact that uh, for any form of economic growth, uh, you need to extract resources f- from this planet on which we live, and that's often done in the third world. It's often done with cheap labor these days. It's uh, it requires a lot of energy and creates a lot of pollution, um, uh, especially if things like you know in in industries such as rare earth metal extraction that sort of thing, um, and. And the bigger the scale of extractive industries, um, and the more industrialized uh, the world economy has become, curiously, we've lost increasingly, the, the economy has become increasingly more sort of abstract to the perceptions of many people. Or a different way of putting it is there's been a loss of sort of artisanal consciousness, if you like. Um, uh as a lot of people have less immediate relationship to production processes of the goods that we use, um, it becomes easier and easier to imagine that these things can be produced uh, by snapping your fingers. Um, it's as if they're just conjured up from nowhere. A lot of stuff I see shared on social media, people um, share kind of new technological discoveries Um solar farms all over the oceans which can extract carbon dioxide and create methane for aircraft that sort of thing um trains that run on hydrogen and people some people i'm a lot of people know that there's much more to them than this but this the 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 degree to which they're shared and they become part of the background music of our consciousness conjures up a world in which um these technologies simply appear from nowhere and make life easier and that relates to an ex- uh, a common form of experience which is uh, that no longer do we really feel as though we're producing things when we need something to consume we just click on a button and it comes the next day magically to the door that's the relationship that we have to the natural world and um, so no wonder there's this sort of magical thinking around um, but on the left it can have a particular function that is the case for example with Aaron Bastani's book that you mentioned um, to me earlier the one that I reviewed in the Ecologist magazine which is that um, uh, Bastani's argument uh, relies on his belief on a faith that uh, that human beings are going to be able, or capitalist corporations are going to be able to or sorry sorry that's a little unfair um, socialist states nationalizing corporations will be able to develop rocket technologies that can send rockets far into outer space or well into the solar system and um, capture some torpedo harpoon some some asteroids and bring them close to an earth orbit and send up lots of robots to extract all the minerals and we can all be billionaires says bastani on the basis of all the platinum and all the gold that we find on these lumps of rock in the heavens and um now this kind of 
bullshit thinking is very clever because most people on the left who wish to proclaim that we can all be billionaires have to uh, find somewhere to extract all those resources. Um, and that usually means confronting the problem of north-south inequality and, and imperialism and exploitation of workers and the pollution that comes with it and so on. But with a wave of his hand, Bastani's, or sleight of hand, Bastani is able to avoid all those difficult questions by imagining uh, asteroid mining. Now, all of this needs to be done very, very rapidly because of the window of opportunity that we were talking about earlier. Maybe this can happen in in 100 years' time. I don't know. The te- but the technological obstacles to that are far too great to be dealt with in the next um, 30 or 40 years when it really counts. So, in other words, it's a form of escapism, really. But I'm not trying to suggest that technology doesn't have a role. Of course, it's technological applications, engineering innovations, and so on, are going to play a vital role in any uh, Green New Deal or other program for confronting the challenge of climate. Um, take, for example, concrete. Um, whatever, uh, you know, the production of wind farms and improvement of people's houses and um, laying train rail track and, and that sort of thing is going to require a lot of concrete. Um, already there's a lot of concrete in the world. Um, some estimates say it's the weight of concrete in the world already is as much as every tree, every shrub, and every bush all added together. Um, but probably we're going to need to increase that substantially. But the problem with concrete is that uh, among the various materials that are causing massive greenhouse gas production... Um, only coal, oil, and gas are worse than concrete. Um, but with new technological developments, that might be able to be improved. And those, te- you know, research needs to be poured into uh, into that. I'm I'm not at all anti-technology, but I think generally in society as a whole, and including on the left, I think the balance of discussion on this is uh, leans far too far towards the techno utopian end. And why is that? I think it's useful to try and pick apart why that is. I think I think it's got something to do with the fact that a core ideology of capitalist society is technological fetishism. And that arises for particular causes. It's the role of innovation in enabling firms to steal a march on their rivals, to gain the super profits that give them a, a, a lead, and to charge technological rents. Um, that all... A lot of that comes from innovations. So innovation, technological innovation is kind of elixir of success for individual firms. Um, so that's one part of the background, I think. And another is that uh, this, in, the, 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 there's, there's a real importance for to capital accumulation of, of continual novelty, of always developing new product lines. That's the way of ensuring your firm will um, keep ahead of the rest of the pack. And so businesses are always trying to persuade us that we need the latest gadgets or we won't be able to play a full part in social life and so on. So so this is the puzzle, really, um, for everyone on the left and beyond. When is the sort of green enthusiasm for a particular technology, when is it, when is it just a manifestation of technological fetishism? That Take the electric car, for example. Is it... Uh, an absolutely vital element in any green revolution? Or is it just another product line to encourage the junking of our existing models, 
buy, buy new ones, keep on buying, keep the wheels of accumulation spinning faster, drive the cars faster, get rid of them, get a new one, and and so on. And so, you know, I'm not trying to argue against electric vehicles. I, I do think the private car uh, is a serious problem because it's an incredibly inefficient way to get around. You're carrying a ton of metal around with you everywhere you go. Um, but certainly there's going to be a role for electric vehicles, um, but they're all going to take more and more energy. And where are you going to supply that energy from? The proportion of renewable energy in the world today is is of total final global energy supply is something like 1.5%. That's for wind and solar and geothermal all combined, just 1.5% rounds down to zero and energy demand worldwide is rising. So, so for every 10 megawatts of renewably generated electricity, only about one megawatt of fossil fuels is actually displaced. The rest is just additional. So, so that raises a whole set of problems. And then there's the whole set of problems of, of developing technologies and then scaling them up. So, for example, the, the example that I just gave recently uh, and earlier on of solar farms on the oceans, I mean, they may be possible. They're going to take a lot of... Um, metal to construct, I suspect, and rare earth metals and so on. But uh, certainly proof of concept has been shown, but it's the scaling them up that's going to count. Um, and that applies also to one of the other magic technologies that's bandied around at the moment, which is carbon capture and storage. Um, you know, some forms of carbon capture are obviously absolutely necessary and vital and can be implemented straight away, like planting lots of trees. Um, Although tree planting obviously doesn't get get around the problem of the basic problem, which is we're extracting carbon from the lithosphere and putting it up in the atmosphere and the biosphere and the oceans. And tr planting trees does nothing to counter that, which is why it's the sort of easy option for people like N Nigel Farage. Nigel Farage and the Brexit party, their complete uh, climate policy is just planting trees. So we've got to be wary of that tree. The problem with trees is they they burn down in greater and greater numbers and they rot and they release methane and, and so on. It's not um, such an easy solution. There are other carbon removal options, biochar and regenerative agriculture and, and 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 so on. But more and more, I think people are going to be talking about um, actual carbon um, capture from the from the air. Uh, there's the new book by Holly Buck, for example, uh, which which Verso has brought out. Now, which, but which really suggests that this is a technology that can be uh, seriously implemented to. So really seriously addressed climate challenge, but she also says it's not going to happen under capitalism. Um, so in other words, not for another, well, how long is capitalism going to last? 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? Um, but we have to have, we have to radically act within those 20 years. So if it's not going to happen within those 20 years, because the infrastructure will be dominated by the oil companies and so on, why are you coming up with this argument now? It danger of it is these technol technological solutions, so-called, will give cover to the business-as-usual mentality because the, corp the corporations, the corporate sector, that's exactly what they're arguing for. Technologies such as this will come to save us. It's what was argued for in the Paris Agreement, that biochar-enhanced carbon capture and storage will enable uh, will be was the crucial technology that was um, advanced in the Paris agreement to try and keep keep um, 
global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees, which is a not such a dangerous level. But since then, uh, it's increasingly become a consensus that that is impossible because it would take enormous amounts of the world's land, planting all those trees to be thrown in, chopped up and thrown into the power stations from which hopefully some, most of the carbon would then be captured, but it's just not viable. Um, so yes, by all means, um, yes, of course, obviously was, research into these sorts of technologies is is important, but um, uh, I think a lot of the uh, left's um, uh, cheerleading for those technologies is um, a little escapist and not it's not looking at the, the, the fine print enough particularly in the case of carbon capture and storage where uh, for the moment much of the, any infrastructure involved in it would be in the hands of the polluter industries so it's the foxes guarding the hen house if you like okay so now let's move on to the opposite extreme which I suppose it's the idea that the most plausible way of avoiding catastrophe is by rolling back growth completely, or the the degrowth um, idea. Now, the degrowth paradigm is a broad church, right? It counts eco-liberals, eco-socialists, and uh, anarcho-primitivists amongst its ranks. Can you help us make sense of the different strands of this movement? And in doing so, um, maybe can you give us your diagnosis on the degrowth paradigm? Okay, I'm. Um, I, I should say that um, first of all, that I think the degrowthers get a lot right. Um, the they certainly um, generally have a recognition of the scale of the problem and the need for a very radical. Uh, solutions and um, for a complete uh, overhaul of the way society is organized, uh, focused on a very rapid reduction of energy throughput and resource throughput. So I think they get a lot right. Um, I should add the caveat that I'm, although I'm sympathetic to a lot of um, the degrowth positions, I'm not a card-carrying degrowther myself, and I don't know the literature of, of degrowth as well as I, I should. But I did recently, uh, in an essay also in the Ecologist magazine, I tried to give a kind of survey of the degrowth camp. And um, so I identified various different types of degrowther, sort of... Um, uh, eco-liberals, uh, anarchists and autonomists, um, socialist feminists, and left Malthusians. Somebody challenged me on this, which was an interesting challenge. Can there be a left Malthusian? Well, um, I mean, that's a that's a whole question unto itself. I mean, Malthus himself, of course, was a growther, uh, a fan of growth, so long as it benefited the British Empire and the upper classes, the Parsons and the political economists included. Um, what I meant by left Malthusians was those who might name-check Malthus in their arguments, but um, their focus is really more generally on limits to growth and on consumerism. And, and in some cases, the focus is much more on the upper classes than, the, than on the lower classes. And in a few cases, even where population is the focus, the, fo the argument is that it's the rich countries that need to uh, uh, reduce population, not the poor countries, which is precisely the opposite of, uh, of Malthus. So there are so there are all these different currents within degrowth, and I'm sure I haven't... Um, exhausted them um, and 
degrowthers who know the literature better will be able to uh, un- will be able to pick holes in this in my survey. But nonetheless, I was the argu- I was trying to make a broader argument, which was that um, uh, to def- I was trying to defend the degrowthers against some of their critics. I sometimes they're uh, it's claimed that they're completely anti-technology, which is just not true. Uh, and some of them sometimes it's said that they're uh, they're committed simply to a politics of less, to simply tightening the belt, the belts, uh, one's belt, and to a, a kind of austerity which is no different to Thatcherite austerity. But I just don't think that's fair. They're arguing for a overall social transformation for a society where there'd be much more, much less material throughput and resource throughput and energy throughput. But um, the people who would be hit the most would be the rich, um, and the people who would gain would be the very poor. There'd be, you know, in their utopia, there's better housing and clean water for all and better sanitation for, for everyone and public transport and quality amenities and so on. And people would, you know, some people would make some sacrifices. If you're addicted to beef, then you would eat a rather less. Um, and there'd be fewer cars and hardly any planes. But um there'd be many, many benefits, much higher quality of life in general. I mean, this, and there'd be large-scale expansion of certain technologies, renewable technologies, pu- public transport, passive houses. All of this requires major construction programs around the world. And um, and there'd be strong unions in the perspective of some degrowthers, at least. Why? Because for them, st- strong unions are crucial for making those gains in social equality on which the program depends and for reducing the working week to a much, much shorter working week. So the argument I was trying to make in that piece, uh, in that essay uh, where I was mapping uh, the degrowth camp, was I was trying to suggest that at the left edge of the degrowth movement, at the anti-capitalist edge, there's actually a real convergence with... Um, with the the Green New Deal type argument, um, uh, and in some ways you can compare the degrowthers to the the Russian Narodniks. I was arguing. arguing. Um, I got this from a from a footnote in a in a, a wonderful book by Juan Martinez Allier. I think he mentions the Narodniks in one of his footnotes, and he's a he's a very prominent degrowther. And um, and to me, it seems as though the, the, you can see a connection or an, uh, an analogy. Um, the Narodniks in Russia in the 19th century were largely urban intellectuals, student movement and so on, but who were very concerned for uh, the the fate of the peasantry, and um, so you can see a comparison with the degrowthers uh, there. I think, um, and the great question for the degrowthers is: Will they be able to upscale their movement in the way that the uh, Narodniks ultimately were able to do? And one should add as well that the Russian revolutionaries learned a lot from the Narodniks in terms of the the lot of the. The, the condition of the peasantry and um, uh, were able to adapt their views um, to some extent under neurotic influence. So again, this is part of my argument that there's a pos- there's a real convergence that the left of the Green New Deal movement uh, and that the left of the degrowth movement um, where some of them come together and that includes Marxists in, in both camps. I mean, because you can read Marx and Engels as as critics of the growth paradigm of growth, the growth imperative. I mean, it's 
of course they fundamental to their philosophy was that human beings are are kind of needs expanding species and of course they championed the development of the human capacity to understand nature and to and to shape nature um but they also saw the expansion of human needs as very compat very much compatible with reductions in in resource use and and then uh, uh, in the communist manifesto they believe that the productive forces uh, that human beings under capitalist conditions had already achieved, this is 1848, had reached the stage at which a transition to communism was at least envisageable. You know, this is 1848, before the invention of the car, before the invention of the telephone, before the invention of the safety pin, for God's sake. And um, and so I think... Um, for these and all sorts of other reasons, um, you can read Marx and Engels as, as uh, to some extent, critics of the certainly of the growth imperative, uh, the, the, which is fundamental to capital uh, to, to capitalism, um, but also um, of the idea that that the the key human need is for a habitable planet. I mean, Marx and Engels were uh, concerned for the environment to to, to, to that extent as. Uh, authors such as John Bellamy Foster and Kohei Saito and Jason Moore have all, and Andreas Malm, of course, have all um, uh, helped us to understand in, in the last couple of decades. And so at that anti-capitalist and in some cases uh, sometimes anarchist and sometimes Marxist uh, end of those two movements, there's definite room for um, for interesting conversation to be had. And that's what I was driving at with the, with the, or trying to get across in that paper. I suppose that somewhere in between left accelerationism and degrowth lies the idea of the Green New Deal, which is now being championed by social democratic forces in, in different countries. It has different names in different countries. I, you know, there's the, the Green New Deal, the Green Industrial, green Industrial Revolution. Revolution here in Britain. Yeah, in, in Spain, uh, they call it the Green Transition. Uh-huh. I wonder if there is uh, a conversation to be held about the different, you know, symbolic imaginaries of different countries in, in uh, using these labels. In any case, despite its different incarnations, what unites all Green New Deals, let's say, I think is the idea of rolling out large-scale public investment to engineer a transition towards a more environmentally sustainable society. Since this strategy is the one that is currently most likely to be implemented in some form, uh, we might as well finish the interview by exploring this in a bit of in a bit more detail. So let's let's just start with the environmental dimension. Are the Green New Deal proposals being floated around any better than the alternatives being put forward by growth boosters? All right. Okay, well, let me... I should start by saying that the... I think the Green New Deal uh, proposal has just transformed the landscape of debate around the climate challenge and made... Uh, uh, and the question of climate breakdown, and made a radical politics uh, around climate much more real for uh, millions of people around the world. And so we have to thank the early innovators, uh, the, uh, the early theorists of the Green New Deal, um, people such as you know the New, New Economic Foundation people and uh, Larry Elliott of the Guardian and Anne Pettifor and, and many many others, 
Uh, and then, of course, the fact that it was taken up by um, uh, Eos Alexander Ocasio Cortez in in the United States, the most one of the most inspiring politicians uh, in certainly in the Western world today, um, and the left of the Democratic Party, and now by momentum and the Labour Party, um, this has just transformed the debate and uh, made. Uh, and and fills us with hope, uh, really. Um, uh, extraordinarily, I think in 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 Britain, uh, the Labour Party uh, at its conference just two months ago uh, passed a very radical motion on the Green New Deal. Um, uh, a huge number of constituency Labour parties submitted proposals on this. I think it was 128. Certainly, um, a big number more than for any other motions in the at the conference. And it was backed by many trade unions as well. Um, I think we need to emphasize this. The fire brigade union uh, in the uh, in the vanguard there and the communication workers as well, of course. Um, so it was a radical motion setting 2030 as a key target for uh, uh, net zero carbon. Uh, it argued for the, case, the need for climate refugees to be accepted into all countries that, uh, uh, that can... Uh, as, as, as well, and for a general soaking of the rich, it was a radical redistributive uh, set of policies as well. There was a commitment to nationalizing the fossil fuel industries, which is a necessary step as well to shutting them down. It's not it's not a solution. Because, I mean, look at the world, look at look around the world. At many of the biggest uh, carbon emitters and oil producers in the world are nationalized companies. So it's no magic solution that, but it is a necessary step towards shutting them down. And um, so it was a very inspiring moment, and it gives a gives us all a glimpse of the kinds of policies that are needed. Um, but the Green New Deal is absolutely a contested field, uh, incredibly contested field. There's a big, large spectrum from the far left that see it as a program for um, socialist transformation of the world. And there's, uh, you know, the person who coined the term Green New Deal was Thomas Friedman, the right-wing liberal New York Times columnist. Um, And there are all points on the spectrum in between. So um, so this has been... um, discussed very interestingly by the American um, Green New Deal advocate um, and theorist uh, Thea Rio Francos in in a piece she wrote for Viewpoint magazine, I think, which is very well worth reading uh, on this question. The Green New Deal is a terrain of struggle. Um, and you can see every every t- everywhere you look at Green New Deal's um, being discussed by political parties and the question of implementation coming up, the... the uh, economic and social conflict uh, cut into it. So to take the Labour Party conference as an example, the motion itself was very radical um, and remained very radical. However, it included initially a call for an end to airport expansion, not for the call, uh, which I think is absolutely necessary and urgent, to shut down all airports um, and unless they're going to be used for dirigibles or something of that sort. You know, you can convert them to dirigible use for a long, slightly slightly slower travel around the world. But um, uh, uh, for aircraft, no, they need to be shut down. It wasn't a call for shutting down airports. It was just a call for ending airport expansion. But that call was nixed 
uh, by a couple of the big unions in Britain, reactionary unions on this point, not their membership, who are divided on environmental issues, but their leaderships. This is the GMB and the and Unite. Um, uh, so, so there there is conflict there um, uh, and struggle to, to be fought. And you know, it, nonetheless, despite the loss of the of that part of the motion, it was still a very very uh, positive development. And and in a watered down form, it has entered the Labour Party manifesto. And um, hopefully, if we keep campaigning for it um, in the next couple of weeks. There'll be a Labour government that can begin uh, uh, to implement those proposals, which would, of course, face massive opposition from business uh, and would need huge support from, from grassroots movements. Movements such as the youth strikers, the school strikers, Extinction Rebellion um, and other movements that will spring up. Um, and it's worth mentioning those movements in connection with the Green New Deal because if you, because I, I, I think it's unlikely that a motion of that ra- degree of radicalism would have been carried on the Labour conference floor if it hadn't been for those movements pushing from the outside, pushing in, and um, if global heating is going to be mitigated meaningfully uh, under capitalism, it's going to require a lot more of those movements, most obviously. Um, but I haven't, I've been circling around your question a little bit, which is, you know, are, are the Green New Deal proposals any different to those put forward by growth, growth boosters? And, you know, by, by green growth boosters, I should say. And yes, there's a clear overlap. Um, and if, you know, as I pointed out, um, even the Labour Party's very radical motion, it, it tended to focus on areas of increase, of growth, of new investments, and not focusing on the challenge of actually shutting down all coal production, all oil production, and so on. Um, and that that's an inevitable tendency, I think, where uh, the Green New Deal is being put forward by parties that are appealing to voters within a capitalist system where most of the world is owned by businesses and we depend for businesses on our jobs. Um, so we do need to think through some of the small, smaller print on some of these demands. Take, for example, the case of high-speed rail. Um, you know, this is broadly speaking a very useful technology that should, I suppose, be rolled out around the world. Do you agree? I, they, probably, but there might be a catch. So what I mean by this is, for example, the proposal exists in, in the United States that um, if aviation is going to be shut down or severely limited, you're going to need to be able to get people across the country, across all those thousands of miles very, very quickly, and that requires high-speed rail. Well, broadly speaking, yeah, but let's imagine what that actually means. It means connecting up the cities, let's say every city in America over the size of New Orleans, that's 50 cities in total, um, then you have to connect them all, add up all the links between them. Now, whatever the map you use, whatever the network topology, that's going to be a lot of rail track. And the rest of the world, of course, we all agree needs, or everyone on the left agrees, I hope, must have the same kind of levels of prosperity and capacities as the United States. That means that someone in Salvador needs to get rapidly to events in Sao Paulo or Manaus and someone and the Muscovite needs to get to Omsk and 
and Vladivostok and so forth. And if you lay that out around the world, you well, where are you going to extract all these materials? I'm, this is going to be a colossal construction project. Um, even on top of all the others, others that we've been talking about, building passive houses around the world and, and so on. Can we even do it without burning the planet to a crisp and barbecuing our grandchildren and so on? But Well, maybe we can, but there's a definite risk that you're going to reach the stage where so much cement has been manufactured, so much iron ore dug up for all this construction that you know, the breakneck expansion of materials throughput that we've seen in China, for example, in recent decades is going to look paltry by comparison, a little burp of greenhouse gases by comparison with what could be emitted. So, you know, even if you look in, in Britain, there's, what is it, 100 miles of new high-speed track being laid? That's going to be require 20 million tonnes of concrete. To produce a tonne of concrete releases the same... Uh, tonnage of carbon dioxide under present technologies. So it's all very well making these proposals, and I think they do need to be made. But we also need to look at the details, um, the the material, <laughs> the material, the materials that will go into that, um, and the energy that will be required. Which gets back to a conversation that we were having before. Of course, you can car- carpet the world with wind wind farms, and we probably should. But you've got to remember that wind turbines are, you know, they're the energy is powered by thin air, but the um, turbines themselves, they're not made by thin air and made of thin air, sorry. They're, they're made of concrete, they're made of steel, glass, copper, glass fiber, neodymium, and so on. And all of this requires highly pollutive mining with mines surrounded by toxic lakes and neighborhoods suffering and, and so on and so forth. So, so we're... F- but of course, under capitalism, these sorts of expansive developments are going to be the ones that um, are filtered to the top because they can find agreement among the radicals and above all the unions and the, the businesses that can profit from them. And um, and those that uh, advocate uh, shutting down and, and, and uh, less overall consumption and tackling the rich directly, they're going to face the power of business and um, the, the urge, urgency for the left, I think, is to keep focused on um, on that struggle, if you like. I suppose what I'm driving at is that there's a dilemma here. Um, I accept that the overturning of capitalism is unlikely in the next 30 years, but the next 30 years is the time we need the world to act very rapidly so you have a conundrum then capitalism is a system of competitive accumulation um where the the competitive dynamic is threaded into interstate competition as well where states seek to um, establish conditions for rapid capitalist growth within their territories um to out compete the rest uh yet those are those states are really the only powers that are capable of mobilizing the sort of resources and manpower that are capable of launching a very sharp change, a Green New Deal. So that's a real dilemma that we face. And I have a lot of sympathy with, um, you know, I, I, the, the Green New Deal is, a, is, a, is an absolutely wonderful um, set of proposals, but um, those that are making them need, I think, to be very aware of that that is a serious conundrum and many of them are so this touches upon the next question which is one of political strategy there is no way around the fact that people's lives and and social reproduction are currently structured around fossil fuel 
uh, infrastructure and that any attempts to dismantle this infrastructure are likely to prompt uh, social backlash. So I'm thinking, for example, about rising transport costs uh, being the, the common theme in many of the mass protests that have recently erupted around the world from, from uh, the Gilets Jaunes in France to uh, uprisings of in you know Chile and Ecuador and so on. How can a Green New Deal strategy work around this problem? Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess back to... I suppose a point I was making earlier that um, is shared uh, absolutely on the left of all of the movements that I've mentioned, which is that there and beyond, which is that there's absolutely enormous scope for improving the quality of life of of pretty much all people, I would say, whilst at the same time radically reducing carbon emissions. I mean, of course, the rich would lose a lot of their toys but i don't know whether they those toys really make them so very very happy um i think even the rich could could um could be one uh uh not peacefully perhaps but ultimately to, to to the idea that their quality of life can improve too but certainly for the mass of the population quality of life can radically improve that would have to address the points that you raised for example that um social reproduction issues uh, as you said, such as the costs of housing and transport and so on, um, have become central themes in a lot of mass protests. Uh, Gilets jaunes is the classic example. Um, well, the obvious solution to that is free public transport um, f- powered by renewables. That takes a lot of investment and quite a lot of construction. And, you know, uh, there are problems that I've been discussing in in that regard, but it is certainly possible that improves people's lives. Um, It means less auto congestion, uh, much better air, and there's a growing awareness around the world of the dangers to health of air pollution. Uh, So a healthier uh, uh, society, cleaner air, and so on. With and improved insulation on houses, so old people don't get cold so quickly. That is something that solves two problems at once: the problem of fuel poverty and the problem of uh, car- of carbon emissions. Um, and then there's the whole question of jobs, um, the Green New Deal, and climate jobs campaigns, and so on, offer ways of reaching out to people to argue that either if you're unemployed or underemployed that there is the potential in a transition to a decarbonized economy for jobs for all this is going to take a uh, an enormous collective global human effort that um, requires people to work and hopefully or i think arguably you know in, in on a shorter working week but with jobs for everyone in i i was involved in um uh, many years ago in, in the One Million Climate Jobs campaign that um, involved uh, people like Jonathan Neal and John McDonnell um, and uh, various uh, union, trade union leaders uh, in Britain. And um, uh, those sorts of jobs campaigns are becoming, sorry, climate jobs and green jobs campaigns are becoming part of the standard repertoire of left-wing parties. Um, and when we talk about jobs and climate change, we're thinking of um, specifically climate-related jobs. So, you know, uh, tidal en- in tidal energy, for example, or geothermal energy, but also in uh, what some are calling pink jobs, jobs in the 
caring care industry. Um, I'm thinking of the work, for example, of um, Alisa Battistoni, uh, one of the Green New Deal um, advocates in the, on the left of, uh, in, in the U.S. and of Titi Patacharya, uh, who wrote a piece in Jacobin magazine on uh, on the role of jobs in care as a central plank of reorienting uh, the economy around human need, and the human need is for a habitable planet and um, enough, you know, obviously enough basic commodities for all, but also a, 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 an economy in which care is central. And then a final point for you on this one is um, the, there's been a lot of talk of um, the need to draw uh, ideas from or inspiration from the the, the retooling of economies in, in war settings um, to face up to the challenge of climate change. So we need to, you know, the American economy, for example, in the Second World War was able to turn around uh, at an incredible pace to retool factories from producing cars to producing tanks and planes and so on. And um, um, uh, that's a an argument that only partially applies to climate the climate challenge because in the war you the American state was able to gain the backing of American corporations relatively uh, straightforwardly because this was a war for American hegemony from which US corporations were going to gain great profit. Now that's going to be harder, there's going to be more resistance uh, from the corporate sector to seriously dealing with climate change. Um, Nonetheless, the idea of unifying society around a program for countering a, a threat that confronts us is certainly there. Um, and doesn't just include the retooling of factories, but it also applies, uh, you know, in, in, in the smaller scale, in the social reproduction front, if you like, or the home front, as Mike Davis called it, in a, in a, in a very illuminating essay on... Um, I think it was called Homefront Ecology or something, where he he discussed the the ways in which um, Americans um, uh, in the Second World War their entire lives were transformed. There was a ditching of the car in favor of bicycles. There were people tearing up the concrete in their yards and planting cabbages and suburbs. Nowadays, you could imagine you know agro agroecology in the suburbs where the the tearing up of lawns, these these lifeless um, zones and, um, and and growing plants on them as well, reducing the need to to, to for industrial agriculture and so on. I, I won't try and summarize Mike Davis's essay other more any more than that. But all of this will, as you say, um, encounter a backlash by capitalist interests, but also from individuals who, who see themselves as, as losing out, as the Gilets Jaunes perfectly understandably did because, because of the way, uh, but, you know, Macron's um, uh, carbon tax was not a ecological, an environmental tax at all. Um, and there was no attempt to, uh, made to um, first provide actual public transport for the people who, who who would be affected by this by by these taxes um and yeah so and so i think that really again is a reminder of the, the the way in which this is a this is a class question you have to find ways of um pushing back against the 
the ruling class that is attempting to do nothing on, on, on these issues, but also of uh, developing programs that can appeal to large numbers of pe- large numbers of people. They they are increasingly seeing that the their, that the lives of their grandchildren and even of themselves in some parts of the world are imperiled, and um, but also that uh, addressing climate change involves ways of improving their lives as well. Cartel, thank you very much. Oh well, thanks for thanks for inviting me. Well, that's all from us on this episode of Political Economy for the End Times. We hope you join us next time. You should have mentioned that. (laughs) (laughs) You should have said that. That's great. What can say it? Sounds great. No, you can't manufacture it. (laughs) We could do the whole question again if you want.